we are going to be in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17 and going to the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. And to make it extra easy, it's on page 913. Uh, so you can either use a Bible in the pew to get to 913, or you can turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 17 in your own Bible. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to read this just a little bit differently today, because this is an amazing story, and I want you to engage and use your imagination to be able to put yourself there. So I'm going to pause at certain places throughout. Don't be afraid. It doesn't mean I've lost my place. Um, that's a chance for you to activate your imagination if it already hasn't been and try to put yourself in the story, okay? But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came... And those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went with them and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But when Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit 
whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. To kill them, sorry. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Thank you, Eric. I feel like I should just pray and lead us into response now. The word can stand on its own, but I have a couple notes I wrote down, so bear with me. First, let's pray. God, we thank you for the chance to gather this morning for the grace of and your provision, your sustaining work in our lives that we could even have breath this morning. And so we've come to bring this breath to you through praise, through prayer, and the proclamation of your word. May you be honored and glorified as we come and once again say, Lord, we need you. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Make us into a people of hope, love, faith, joy, proclaiming the freedom that is found in Jesus, the King of kings, the Prince of princes. Thank you, Lord. Now be glorified in this time. Amen. One of the notes I wrote was to clarify a statement that I said last week off script. And when you're passionate about something and that happens... Uh, sometimes you need to revisit and clarify, and uh, it's been nagging at me. I didn't get one email for it. I wonder as I clarify it how many emails I'll receive this week. 
But I said, I, I believe that I said, I didn't go back and listen, but I do believe that I said, and this is completely out of context. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen and affirm this. But I, I said, I, we don't have a gun problem. We have an enemy problem. I just want to clarify and update and say, we don't primarily have a gun problem. We have an evil problem. And we have an enemy who has worked well to do what he does, to steal, to kill, and destroy, and oppress the minds and hearts of so many in our country. Ah, Hopefully I'll be less nagged by that now. Thank you for your grace. Acts 5 is, what's the transition? I, I don't know. Evil still reigns today as it did then. Acts 5 is an answer to prayer. Let's start with the positive. Don't you love it when God answers prayer clearly with a resounding yes? Okay, God answers all prayers. I believe in some ways silence is an answer to prayer, but he answers with a yes, a no, a not yet. And sometimes that silence is interpreted as the not yet. He answers, but he always is answering the prayers of his people. And in this chapter, a resounding yes to the prayer the church prayed in Acts 4. And if you listened carefully, you would say, how is this a yes answer to prayer? The apostles are arrested, threatened, thrown in prison, persecuted, beaten publicly. How is this an answer to prayer? Well, it depends what kind of prayers you're praying. Let me remind us, in Acts 4, verse 29, this is the prayer they prayed. Lord, look upon the, th- the threats of, uh, this was the temple leaders, of their threats, the, 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 the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In the face of opposition, in the midst of persecution and threats, notice that they didn't pray for rescue and deliverance. They prayed for boldness and perseverance. And they prayed with an expectation that God was going to continue in the work that He had been doing. Stretching out His hand. So Acts 5 is an answer to prayer. Verse 12. Didn't hear this read today. We read it last week. Verse 12 Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Skip to verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And verse 16. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Even though the persecution continues for the apostles and the early church, God's hand continues to be stretched out to them in power. As we heard in verse 18, the apostles are arrested and thrown into prison again. Peter and John, the first time now it seems that more are thrown into prison. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. Hadn't they been doing that? A little ironic there. Go and do it more. That's how they got in prison in the first place. Is this going to be a cyclical story? But the prayer had been, give us boldness to continue to preach while your hand continues to work. If any of their boldness was wavering now that they found themselves in prison, and likely 
as is true for all of us, when hard circumstances come, can make our faith and our boldness waver, can't it? And so if there was any wavering as they were there in prison yet again, I'm sure the sending of this angel must have reinvigorated them. And even though this persecution continues as they're beaten publicly, their perseverance triumphs. And they leave in the last verses we heard read, verse 41 and following, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, if that's not supernatural boldness, I don't know what is. This is an answer to their prayer from Acts 4. And what other explanation is there? Joy in the midst of pain and suffering. Hope in the face of opposition and hardship. Peace in the midst of uncertainty. Now, God's hand may stretch out into our lives to rescue, to heal, to deliver And those aren't wrong prayers. We see them throughout Scripture summarized in the Lord help me kind of way. But I'm struck that the prayer here is Lord give us boldness in the midst. It's not first for rescue and deliverance. It's not first for God's retaliation, but for boldness. And God's hand may reach and rescue and deliver. God's hand may reach and judge those that oppose or judge the evil in our midst. And that's a powerful testimony of God's presence in his work. But just as much God's hand may reach into our lives, into our very midst, and work within us to bring a boldness, to bring perseverance, to bring this unmistakable joy, hope, and peace. Miracles can happen within as much as they can happen without. The Holy Spirit is at work in manifest ways that are many. Well, how can this be true of us? We kind of work our way backwards through this passage. How could this possibly be our reality, that we could know this kind of joy and hope and peace, living with a passion and a purpose? I see it witnessed in many of you in the way that you live. And I bet you don't even know who you are. I bet you still say, I I wish I knew that. I long for this kind of joy that's unshakable by circumstances. I want to live with this kind of purpose and passion, confident that I'm doing exactly what I was put on this earth to do. I want to know hope and peace in the midst of trial, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of uncertainty. And I want to see God show up regularly in my life, in my family in my neighborhoods, in the fields that I'm planted in. You have a longing for that, a hunger for that. It's the life of the disciple of Jesus. Luke is showing us the normal Christian life. And so are we there yet? The answer is no. But we're in good company. We're on a lifetime journey. The Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, very few Men throughout Scripture esteemed as highly as Paul for his walk with Jesus, his Christ-likeness. And here's what he says, Philippians 3. This does not give us encouragement for those that are not yet there. 
In Philippians 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this, all that I'm talking about here. Not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Toward the end of his life, while he himself was in prison, he's writing in this way. It's a journey, it's a lifetime, it's a pursuit. And the question is, are we, are we growing? Are we growing towards this kind of joy and hope and peace and purpose and passion? Are we growing to see God more and more at work in our midst, if not in our very lives? Are we praying with this kind of boldness? Are we praying for that boldness? Have our prayers expanded from the Lord help, get me out, rescue me, to Lord give me strength in the midst? Are we praying with this same kind of expectancy of the early church? Almost this, we know God that you are going to continue to work with or without us. Give us the boldness. We don't want to miss anything. You're going to continue to stretch out your hand. God, may you stretch out your hand through us. Are those some of the prayers that are expanding and growing in our life? At least a place to begin. And then I think we need to root out the heart of the Sadducee and the Pharisee and Gamaliel that's within us all. I know that's exactly what you were thinking as you came this morning. There's too much Sadducee within me. Broken over the pharisaical pride that is in my heart. I still have this little Gamaliel sitting on my shoulder whispering lies. I know that's exactly what you were thinking. And so let's go there. All three denied that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Savior, and now the risen King. And while that may be true of some of you, You're here for other reasons. You're here with a friend or a family member. But for you, you deny that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The Son of God sent to save, redeem, and deliver all people who would come to him. For others, that's too harsh. You would say, I I, I don't deny it, but I'm uncertain if I believe it. I have a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. And I would say likely for the majority who would gather in a place like this, we consider ourselves followers of Jesus. Disciples in process, but disciples nonetheless. And so, if we're honest, where does the little Sadducee and Pharisee and Gamaliel reside within us? And if we want to live the same, with the same kind of joy, passion, purpose, hope, and boldness that we see in the early church, then we do well to root out that weed that's growing. Seems like the right time of year to use that analogy. You know what happens if you have just that one dandelion in that lawn of yours a few months' time. We do well to root it out when we can. And so... The Sadducee. Verse 17, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that's the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy 
So they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The Sadducees were a sect within Judaism, uh, considered likely the social and political elite. They served in priestly-like roles within the temple. They'd only been in existence for about 200 years. But they had found themselves into these high positions of prominence. We're told in Scripture that what was different about some of their beliefs, they did not believe in the resurrection, therefore not an afterlife. They did not believe in the miraculous work or the supernatural. Well, so they were sad, you see. (laughs) You haven't heard that one? Come on. They dissected the Scriptures They chose parts that they would believe and follow, and they dismissed the rest. They seemed to live for this world only. They seemed to revel in the approval and the attention, the accolades that came from men through the positions that they had for the power and control that they wielded within the Jewish community. And when that control was threatened, when they see others gaining a following, they become deeply jealous They also had a reputation for corruption. I think the heart of the Sadducee both covets what others have, but is also jealous, greedy to keep what it possesses that others may not have it. And I think the Sadducee heart is a worldly one. And does that not live or is rooted in some way in all of us, consumed by the stuff of this world? living in such a way that would deny that there is an afterlife. To build, to acquire, to accumulate as much as possible, to be as happy as possible for as long as possible, because this is all we got. We've got one life to live. Essentially, perhaps we all, maybe unconsciously, pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we will believe and follow and dismiss or question the rest. We look at the world, look at our life, and we sometimes wonder, can the Bible answer anything? Does the Bible offer any explanation, any hope? Does it help us cope? And if not, or we can't seem to find the answer that satisfies then earthly wisdom, perspective, experience rules the day. But what does the Bible say? James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know about that. One of those parts that I'd rather just move to the periphery. Let's focus back on love, joy, peace, generosity. The Sadducees as a sect faded from history within a few decades of Acts chapter 5. When the temple was destroyed, it seems that so were they. As their positions were removed, their faith crumbled. And so it is with every present-day Sadducee, those that live for this world only, those that are consumed by the stuff here, will one day fade along with any positions, 
possessions or power. How do we root out that heart, however deeply it grows within us? How do we root it out? Through prayer and confession, clearly. Lord, forgive me for worshiping created things over you, the creator. I don't want to do that. I'm just prone to it. Lord, forgive me. Show me my jealousy. Show me my greed that I might repent. When it comes to our positions, it's hard to say that relative to the world, everyone seated in this room has a position of influence, if not privilege and power. Some, even so much more. Related to positions, positions of influence are not at all wrong. It's what our heart does with them when it becomes entwined to them, when that position and the power that comes through it starts to become our identity, a need to possess and maintain. And so would we step away from a position of influence simply because of the danger to our heart? Would we pray boldly, God, remove my heart from that position and watch what he does? To fully root out the heart of the Sadducee, though, we must come to trust God's word in its totality. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Every bit of it. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Knowing and living all of God's word is vital. It's one of our core convictions as a church. See, it's a shift from instead of looking at our world and the circumstances and then wondering if God's word answers any of it, we look to God's word first. What does it say to help us understand what we see in our world, what we experience in culture, and what we live through in our circumstances? That shift is vital. And our culture, and likely the evangelical church, has flipped those naturally according to our own heart and our own will. And they must be restored if we're going to root out this heart of the Sadducee. And maybe there's a root. Maybe it's a tendril. What about the Pharisee? If the Sadducees were the social and political elite within Judaism in that day, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They believed that they had come... Like few others could, they had come to perfectly fulfill the law. Okay, not that they weren't sinful and didn't err at times, but even then there was a provision for it to come and bring offerings and sacrifices. And they did so perfectly. And they grew to have this stature and honor and respect amongst the people, and they led too amongst the Sadducees on the ruling council that brought the apostles before them. They loved the honor and the esteem, just like the Sadducees that came with their high religious life, this apparent perfection persona. So they were fair, you see. Trying to make a distinction. But in Scripture, there is no group of people that Jesus more harshly rebukes than the Pharisee. The one who apparently fulfilled the law, lived the law, lived this devout life better than anyone. And Jesus railed against them again and again. See, they followed religious regulations 
but they had no relationship with God their Father. They kept the law, but they had no love. In Mark 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, you hypocrites. It's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They knew what to say and they knew how to look, but their heart was not in love with God. The Pharisee wouldn't trust in Jesus the Messiah because they had no need for him. Though they believed and would say with their mouth the prophecies of old that a Messiah was coming, a deliverer would be sent, they did not need one. They were busy saving themselves. They were perfectly fulfilling the law themselves. Why would they need another to come and fulfill it? If they could achieve it, why would they need an atoning sacrifice? It had already been provided and they were faithfully trusting in it. The ways of the law and of the temple. They needed not a person to deliver them and save them. Besides, they liked the influence and respect as the Sadducees. Their pride was coddled and fueled every day. There was no room or need for Jesus. Verse 27 of Acts 5, they brought the apostles in and set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them and said, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are and have fulfilled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That didn't hold back Peter, did it? And as he responded to them. But there was no room to consider that they had killed the Messiah. There was no, their pride left no room for accountability to even examine. They weren't self-examining. They were self-righteous, self-justifying. And Peter goes right at them. There, here's more supernatural boldness verse 29 we must obey god rather than men and the god of our fathers raised jesus whom you killed by hanging him on the tree high priest just said don't put this on us and peter says it is on you god exalted him though to his right hand as leader and savior that word can also be translated as prince to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. We've seen a number of Peter's sermons now. This is probably the most compact, the most powerful, succinct, bold proclamation of the gospel, maybe, that we have seen in Acts so far. And when they heard it, they are enraged, and they wanted to kill them. There's no humility. There's no brokenness. There's no openness or accountability there's no repentance there's only pride and hostility how dare you call us out it's ironic a little that they are unwilling to even consider their own guilt in putting to death jesus and here they are willing yet again to shed innocent blood they are self-justifying and self-fulfilling and yet the amazing thing of, in the gospel here that Jesus says is, this Jesus came for you. He came for Israel. You represent Israel. 
Had they simply heard this and been repentant and convicted, forgiveness would have come to them that day. As a tangent, for, I, would, I would say for 2,000 years, there has been hostility to the gospel of Jesus Christ and toward his followers. And if we're aware at all of the persecution that happens around our globe, then that's not a surprising statement. But if we step back and consider it, is it not amazing? Is it not a supernaturally inspired hatred and opposition? And certainly throughout millennia, men and women in the name of Christ have misrepresented Him completely. But the true disciple of Jesus, just like these apostles, and the true disciples of Jesus even today who are being persecuted and killed for their faith, are standing up for hope, for peace, for life, for freedom. They're the ones that are truly serving the least of these, the poor, pouring out their lives and giving all. Isn't that amazing? The amount of opposition and hatred that can come for someone proclaiming that message. The Christ follower who says in front of a political ruler or a person of influence, I will pray for you. How could I serve you? And that leader in response saying, I will kill you. Is there not something supernaturally inspiring that hatred? Is that simply the color of pride? Not to diminish pride. But if you're one who is saying, I have too many questions and too many doubts about this Jesus, would you consider for a moment that evidence? Consider also the true disciples of Jesus and whether or not they pour out their life in love and service in the same way that these apostles were. Offering what should have been the most incredible offer ever, true life, true forgiveness, true grace, healing, purpose, passion, all of that was offered to them. And they wanted to maintain the semblance of earthly power that they had. Not to diminish pride. Often we do, and often we don't even see it. We're blind to it. I mean, right? The, the heart of the Pharisee today would say, there's no Pharisee within me. <laughs> exactly what it would say. Always justifying if any of these things are true of us. Always quick to justify our actions, our words. Quick to have an excuse when we may have made a mistake or been wrong. I don't know if marriage brings that out for any of you, but if you always have an excuse ready, let alone potentially an agitation, if not an anger, when your shortcomings are brought to the surface and you're willing to lie to cover up a mistake and lie to cover up that lie, there's the root of the Pharisee that's within, I, I believe, us all. Can we root it out? If we have... Life figured out, why would we need a Savior? If we can perfectly keep God's Word, or at least by our estimation do so much better than the majority, why would we need an atoning sacrifice? How do we root this out? 
Well, we have no hope if we are still denying that it's within us. But if there's a willingness to heed God's word, and that's at minimum a willingness to look at our pride that may still be lurking. Lord, where is it? James, let's go back to James chapter 4. He gives us more grace. There's hope even for the Pharisee. There's grace for the Pharisee. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Resist the enemy and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now there's many times in Scripture that speak of responding joyously and celebrating. So this is specifically talking in relation to our sin and our pride. It's not okay. Grieve about it. Mourn about it. Be sorrowful that that still exists. But the promise is here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We have an ability to walk in humility. We can respond to God's word with soft hearts or with hard hearts. It's the same word. What an opportunity we have, even this morning, as we seek to draw near to him, as we come to the table, as we draw near to him in our words and our voices, as we lift them up, as we draw near to him in our offerings or our gifts, saying, Lord, it's a privilege, it's a joy, it's a sacrifice. And what of Gamaliel? We could dwell here, maybe this could be its own sermon and maybe it's not worthy of it. Is there a little Gamaliel within us all? I know that's a common thought. He was one of the leading rabbis of the day. In fact, in Acts 22, we'll find out that Paul was under his leading. So he has a very high position and he stands up, and I don't need to read it again, but verse 34 and following, he stands up and actually speaks what would, what would seem like peace. And apparently, this was what spares their lives, at least for a time, because they would go on to continue to preach boldly and eventually give their lives for this message. But in this moment, as he says, listen, and he calls out these two men who are these insurrectionists, that could be a history lesson in and of itself. I've got notes if you want to talk about it. Theudas, Judas, they they rose up, caused an uprising, and once they were out of the picture, it just faded and disappeared. He compares Jesus to them. The heart of Gamaliel, though at first it might appear like he's stepping in and speaking a measured message and measured peace, it's just as far from God as the heart of the Sadducee and the Pharisee. He's comparing Jesus to an insurrectionist who has come on the scene for a time and will simply fade away. That's his belief. He throws in this caveat that but, you know, if it is from God, we, how could we do anything anyway? Because, you know, we believe in this. But that's more, that's pretty unlikely. Gamaliel, I think, speaks for many today who are in the, especially in the West, who aren't hostile toward Christ, toward his followers who would proclaim life and hope and joy and peace and who would serve and give all to serve and be with the poor. They're not hostile, they're tolerant. They speak a message of whatever works for you, whatever you need, do it. Don't impose it upon me. Let's get along. Let's 
love and not fight. Let's coexist. Gamaliel was pretty content with his position and how things were. He didn't want to lose any of it. So let's just, let's just settle down. We don't need any more of this. It's just going to fade. Let it be. Let them be. I think we can be pretty prone to this attitude. Once we find a bit of security in our life, a bit of routine, a bit of provision, if not abundance, we just want to stay there. Let's build a wall around it and live in it. The problem is the kingdom of God has no walls. It's meant to be ever-expanding. It's meant to be proclaimed and to move and to multiply. It's the Acts 1-8 mission that we've been called to. No, we're not called to be insurrectionists, but we're not called to be preservationists. We're called on a mission to advance. I think the heart of Gamaliel can live in that contentment with how things are, with the positions we hold, with a bit of security that we have, and simply, hang on, hang on, let's, let's hold it together. We are called with a message of peace. As far as it depends on you, live in peace with one another. But to proclaim the gospel is often unsettling and cannot coexist. Jesus said, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. It will divide. It'll divide the hearts of men. It will fight against evil. There will be a sense of that in our life. I think the Amish are a a picture of the heart of Gamaliel. Not questioning the individual's love for God and genuineness, but a protection and a preservation of a way of life in order to dwell here, here on earth with God. And the problem is it doesn't work for the true disciple of Jesus. This world is not our home. We cannot preserve it and protect it. We're called to live in it. And if we think we can build some structure here that will fulfill that desire and that longing, we've lost sight of our eternal home. In some ways, we are nothing like the Amish. In many ways, we're no different. That's the heart or the root of Gamaliel if I can try to capture it in a moment. One who is contented with the way things are and does whatever it can to hold on to them. The one thing that Gamaliel at least said that was right and was true, if this is the work of God, whether he threw it on as a caveat or not, it is a true statement. If this is the work of God, nothing will stop it. And that became a prophetic word. God can speak through anyone, in any way, at any time, even those who are speaking on their own behalf. Can we repent of the Gamaliel within us, of our tolerance for how things are? And while there's some things that we will be called to as a people to fight against, we are primarily called as a people, and it's modeled for us in Acts, to be a people who stand for. Not fight against, but to stand for. Sometimes that brings the opposition and the persecution. But where we have opportunity to stand for the gospel of Jesus, for the name, His name and His fame, for deliverance and healing, 
for life and life to the full, for love and for grace, for generosity and hospitality, may we stand for. And I would ask us, how can we be content when the things, then these things, these markers of the kingdom are dormant or seemingly non-existent in our midst? Join me in prayer and then let's respond. God, Father, we for, forgive us, Lord, for our contentedness, the Gamaliel within us. Forgive us for our pharisaical pride. Show us where we don't even see. Give us eyes to see. Forgive us for living like the Sadducee, consumed by worldly pursuits, not convicted by the truth of Your Word. And God, make us into a people of joy, purpose, passion, hope, boldness, as you continue to stretch out your hand in our midst, in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in this city, in this region, and even to the ends of the earth. We draw near to you, God. As far as it depends on us, we draw near to you, God. Now draw near to us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, Lord of lords, King of kings, the one who has come to save, to heal, to deliver, and to give us strength to persevere until the day he returns. Amen.